Well, as our worship team takes their place in the congregation, I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 13. Hopefully, when you came in, you received a copy of the bulletin. Inside that bulletin, there is an outline that you can take out and follow along the sermon. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can also pull one of the pew Bibles out from in front of you and turn to page 900. That's where the text for our focus this morning is going to be. As I preach a message this morning, I've entitled a new commandment, a new commandment. You know, growing up in the state of Florida and now having lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee for a quarter of a century, that's hard to believe I've lived here that long, there's honestly not much I miss about the state of Florida. There's not. In fact, here are just a few things about my home state I do not miss. I do not miss the mind-numbing heat and the intense humidity that saps the life out of you. I do not miss the regular hurricanes that make their way across the peninsula every year. I do not miss the sandy soil and the scraggly trees and the flat terrain that is totally monotonous and unpretty. I do not miss the myriad of biting bugs, the yellow flies, the gnats, the um, mosquitoes, the ticks, the scorpions, and I do not miss this bug called the palmetto bug. It's just a massive two-inch um, cockroach that covers all the sandy soil of central Florida. My wife doesn't miss the, the uh, bugs either. But there's one thing in particular about Florida that I really don't miss, and that is the beach. Here I am enjoying the beach. <laughs> This is the height of enjoyment for me. I'm not a fan of the beach, and I've told many of you before, like a sermon, there are five alliterated reasons why I don't enjoy the beach. Number one, the sun. Because of my fair complexion, the sun doesn't go well with my skin. Number two, the sand. The sand gets in everything, especially if you have little kids. They get it all over your food and in your drink. The sand is horrible. And I don't like, number three, the sunscreen that is necessary because of my fair complexion. Because what the sunscreen is, is actually it's a great adhesive, and now all the sand sticks to your body. I don't like sunscreen. Number four, I'm not a fan of salt water. It tastes awful. Uh, it gets in your eyes and it burns, and you can't see through the salt water to see the little critters that are in the beach. And number five, I'm convinced Satan lives at the beach. He invented the beach, and he lives at the beach. And so I'm not a fan of the beach for these five reasons. Now, of all these reasons why I don't like the beach and why I don't miss the state of Florida and am perfectly content, to remain in the beautiful rolling hills of Chattanooga, there is one thing from the environment of Florida that I do miss, and that is the colorful sunsets on the beach. If you've ever been on the beach in the, in the summertime in Florida, you know, like clockwork, there is a thunderstorm that's going to roll in around four or five o'clock, and these dark, massive clouds will overwhelm anything. You'll hear the thunder, you'll see the lightning strikes, the rain will fall for about 45 minutes until finally those clouds roll away and the sunshine breaks through. And as the sun shines through the particles of moisture in the atmosphere and it reflects off the gulf, it produces these colors that are breathtaking, the full spectrum. And that's not enough for me to move back to Florida, but it is magnificent. Here's a similar experience some of you may have been in before. If you've ever been in a room with a particularly negative person, a real Debbie Downer, 
It's like a dark cloud enters that room, right? And it colors the entire uh, conversation. But once that person leaves the room, ah, it's like the clouds break, the sun shines in, and the conversation now has a full spectrum of colorful tones. Well, that's something of what happens in our text today. There is a dark cloud that leaves the room. This dark presence, and his name is Judas. Judas exits the upper room where Jesus is having this intimate conversation with his disciples. He goes to sell out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and that's, he does it when Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. He leaves the upper room, a place where John will, for the next four chapters of our study together, verse by verse through John's gospel, will receive some of the most intimate instruction from the Lord to the 11 who remain in the room. The intimate instruction we'll see from this Sunday forward is some of the most fantastic things coming from the lips of Jesus. Next week, we'll see, Lord willing, where Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. Then later he says, Thomas, you don't know where I'm going or how to get there? Here's how you get there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus will go on to teach that there is a promise of a helper, a comforter, a comforter, a paraclete, who will come alongside the gift and the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He will talk about the necessity of the disciple abiding in Jesus six times. He says, abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't bear fruit unless you are abiding in Jesus. He gives the warning, hey, don't be surprised if this world hates you. If the world hates you, just know it hated me first. He goes on to tell them that there's coming a time when your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he goes on to tell them perhaps the height and the pinnacle of this upper room discourse and instruction to the 11, chapter 17 where those 11 disciples, and then we, through the pen of John, get to listen in to the communion and conversation of the triune God, the high priestly prayer. And what does Jesus pray for principally? He prays for those 11 disciples and everyone who would believe because of their testimony. Who does that include? It includes all of us. That's who he's praying for. And this whole intimate instruction begins when the dark cloud called Judas walks out the door. He leaves, and all of a sudden, the clouds part, and this colorful conversation begins. That's what John tells us in verse 31 of our focal text. Look at it with me. This is the word of the Lord. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Judas has left the building. He's removed from the room, and the loving, careful instruction of the Lord follows, and it is breathtaking. And we get this record of all that Jesus taught them in these hours in the upper room after Judas has left from the pen of John alone. I find it interesting that the other three gospel accounts, they don't record any of this instruction that we're going to be studying over the next several months. They each record, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the denial of, G- of Peter, of Jesus, and I think that's interesting. They were each and everyone recorded that. But all this instruction I just summarized a few moments ago, it's not in any of the other gospel accounts, only in John's gospel account. And so in my study this week, I asked myself the question, why is that the case? Why is John the only one who records all of these vitally important instructions that Jesus will give to these 11? Why is it so strongly imprinted on the consciousness of John that he records decades later all that the Lord said? We do know that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and would give them remembrance into all things. So no doubt what John records here in these chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, that these are things that the Holy Spirit brought to his remembrance. So there's obviously this divine inspiration that gave him this vivid recollection. But I think, personal opinion here, there's something else going on. I think there's something else going on here specifically with John as it relates to Judas leaving the room and how that caused all these teaching to be imprinted on the mind of John. If I look back at the passage Wade preached from last week in the next previous paragraph, at some of the details that John includes. Look at verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So Jesus had just said, hey, there's going to be one of you who's going to betray me. There's chatter going on, 13 hungry men eating this feast. You can imagine the noise and all that's going on in the conversation. And somehow, Peter gets John's uh, notice, and he says, hey, hey, ask him. Ask him what? Ask him who it is. Ask him who's going to betray him. Look at the next verse, verse 25. So that disciple, this is John, leaning back against Jesus, he's sitting next to Jesus, says, Lord, who is it? This is a private conversation. All the other disciples, they don't hear him ask Jesus this question. Only John is going to get the response from Jesus. And notice what Jesus whispers back to John in verse 26. Jesus answered him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. This is just a private conversation with John and Jesus. So when he had dipped the morsel... He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table 
knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. See, nobody else knew what was going on. No one else understood the private conversation that's happening between John and Jesus in this moment. Jesus, who is it? The one to whom I give this morsel of bread. Boom. Can you imagine the tectonic shift that happened in the mind of John? No one suspected Judas. No one thought he would be the betrayer. And Jesus gives him this inside information. It's going to be the one I hand this piece of bread to. And he sees it's Judas, and all of a sudden, everything in his mind just warps. And he begins recalling the last three years with one of his closest friends, Judas. And he begins thinking, oh, maybe that's why he said that. Maybe that's why he was moved in this way. Maybe that's why he said about Mary's sacrificial anointing of Jesus with a year-long salary of perfume. Maybe we could have sold this and given the money to the poor. Why? Because he used to take money out of the money bag. Everything shifts in John's mind. And now he is zeroed in on what Jesus is going to say. John alone had seen this betrayal set in motion. And personal opinion here, I think this is why along with the inspiration of the Spirit, he has a heightened sense of awareness and recollection of everything we'll study over the next four chapters. He alone records it. And it all begins right here in verse 31 after Judas walks out of the room. And so from this upper room discourse, beginning here in this section, I want us to consider four things in particular from John's consciously aware and Holy Spirit-inspired account of Jesus' initial instruction. The first one is this. Number one, the display of glory. Jesus is going to talk about a display of glory. It is a startling statement that once Judas walks out of the upper room, that Jesus pronounces, now, (laughs) now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. We've seen this kind of chronological language all through John's gospel. From the very beginning, whenever Mary comes to him, his mother, and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, woman. (laughs) All through John's gospel, we see that kind of language. My hour has not yet come. My hour is not here. Until we get to chapter 12, and he begins to say, the hour has come. The hour is here. And now, once this tipping point of what will transpire over the next 24 hours, Judas walks out of the room to betray the Lord. He says, now, now it's all going down. Now it's going to happen. And what is about to transpire? Because we know, we've read the story, seems like anything but glory. What's about to transpire? He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be arrested at night. He's going to go through not one, not two, but three sham trials. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spit upon. His beard is going to be plucked. He's going to be impaled on his head with a crown of thorns. He's going to be led up the hill to Golgotha, impaled to a tree, and he will die there. And Jesus says, now, 
that Judas has set this all in motion. Now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. How is this glory? How is this glory? If you were here five weeks ago, I preached a message I entitled The Glory of the Cross from chapter 12, verse 27 through 36. And in that message, I outlined three reasons from that passage why the cross of Jesus, the brutal death and crucifixion of Jesus, is in fact glorious. What were they? Let me remind you. First of all, the cross is glorious because it is a wrath-assuaging sacrifice. Now is the judgment of this world. Jesus took the judgment you deserve. That's glorious. Jesus also said that at the cross, the wicked one would be defeated. The, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Friends, that's glorious. And thirdly, he said, because of the cross, there will be a winning of the nations. He says, when I'm lifted up on the cross from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. The glory of the cross. There's something else happening in the death and arrest of Jesus that is glorious. This word glory or glorious can also mean revealing or displaying. It's a Greek word doxa. Um, you don't need to know that, but that's the word underneath our English word glory. And this word doxa, we see some English words in there. Doxology, we know the song doxology. It's a hymn that sings of the glory of God. You've heard the word orthodox lightly, uh, likely, and orthodox, ortho means straight. An orthodontist does what? Straightens your teeth. Orthodoxy is straight truth, straight revealing, straight displaying of the nature of Jesus. And so here, this is something else that's happening here. There's some straight truth about Jesus, some correct doctrine about himself and God the Father that is being put on display. And that truth is glorious. I've been asked this question numerous times, and you've probably thought of it. When you think about all the suffering throughout human history because of human sinfulness, and there's an incalculable amount of suffering because of human sinfulness. And when you think about the apex of that suffering, being the innocent son of God, dying brutally on a cross, I've asked this question, you may have asked the question yourself, God, why did you ever create man to begin with? You ever thought that? God, if you knew, you're all-knowing, you're sovereign, if you knew Adam and Eve would plunge into sin, if you knew that that sin would infect all of humanity, and if you knew that all of humanity was going to have all kinds of horrible, deviant things that progress from that sinfulness that would ultimately require the Son of God taking on human flesh, dying in the place of sinful men. God, why did you create us to begin with? You ever asked yourself that question? I don't presume to know all of the reasons and purposes of God, but I think here is one reason. Had God never created humanity that would then sin, there are aspects of God's nature and character that would never have been displayed. You see, apart from the sinfulness of man, would we ever know the character of grace? Apart from the fallenness of man, would we ever know mercy? Apart from man's sinfulness and the brutality that would transpire, would we ever know um, his patience, his forbearance, and ultimately, would we ever know and come to understand his agape, unconditional love? The answer, no. 
But God does create man, knowing man will fail, knowing that Christ, crucified from the foundation of the world, would be required to take on human flesh and die in our place. He does that because of glory. There are aspects of God's nature that would not have been known. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And make no mistake, the justice of God, the judgment of God against sin is seen in the cross. The judgment you deserve and I deserve was taken by Jesus. In fact, look at this slide that's on the screen. screen. The greatest significance of the cross is not the blessings afforded to mankind, but rather the glory the cross brings to God. Because God is all about his glory. The ultimate purpose of the cross is glory. In the cross, God's magnificent, manifold spectrum and color of glory is put on magnificent display. That leads to the second thing I want us to consider from this passage, not only the the display of glory, but secondly, the departure of the Lord. In verse 33, Jesus gives his disciples some insight into his upcoming departure from their presence. Look at it again. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And it was his impending departure away from his disciples that prompts him to teach all this magnificent truth in these four and a half chapters we're beginning to study this week. In fact, Jesus alludes to, in verse 33, that he's already communicated his impending departure to his opponents, to the Jewish leaders. Look at the two records on the screen. Chapter 7, Jesus then said, this is speaking to the Jewish leaders, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you can't, where I am, you cannot come. And in chapter 8, he says a similar thing. He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But then here in chapter 13, Jesus takes a starkly different tone with his disciples than he does with the religious leaders. With the disciples, how does he address them? Little children. Little children. Where I'm going, you can't come. I told this to the Jews who were against me. That's an affectionate term. It's significantly different than you're going to die in your sin. That's what he told the religious leaders. But to his disciples, little children, they would obviously be greatly troubled about his departure about his going away. That's why the next chapter begins. Don't let your hearts be troubled because this would be troubling to them. Why would they be troubled? Because they love Jesus. Because they had come to know and to recognize and believe that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. They had come to know and believe that during their time of discipleship with him, that they relied on his loving ministry. But now that love would be taken away. And not only was Jesus' love departing from the disciples, but his love is leaving the world. His love will be gone. The agape love, the unconditional, the sacrificial love of Jesus will be gone. 
If only there was some way for the love of God to remain on the planet. Hmm, I wonder if there is. That leads to point number three, the decree of discipleship. He gives the decree of genuine discipleship in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. During Holy Week this year, we had two special services that week. On Friday, we had a Good Friday service where we remember the death, the crucifixion, the suffering, the separation of Jesus. And then we had a celebration service on Easter Sunday, our Easter worship service. But there are some churches that have a third service during Holy Week. It's on Thursday. Does anybody know what it's called? Maundy Thursday. As a kid, I always wondered, why did they have Maundy Thursday on Thursday? Why don't they have Maundy Monday? That seems to make more sense. Maundy doesn't mean Monday. Maundy is actually from the Latin word mandatum. Mandatum. It's from where we get our English word mandate, command, decree. A Maundy Thursday service celebrates the new mandate, the new command, the new decree from the Lord we see here in verses 34 and 35. Now, the question we need to ask is, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. He says that a couple of times. The question is, what's new about the new commandment? What's new about it? Has the Bible, the scriptures ever commanded the people of God to love? Well, sure. Jesus even said, the whole law and the prophets are summarized in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's loving one another. That's from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. So how is this a new commandment? Well, just as the new covenant does not replace the old covenant, it fulfills it. The new commandment that Jesus gives here in John 13 doesn't replace the old commandment. It fulfills it. So what's new about the new commandment? There are a couple of things among many I I could name, but I want to show you two profound ways this commandment to love others is drastically new. First of all, the new commandment has a new subject, a new subject of our love. He says, he repeats, love one another. To the eleven gathered in the room, just them, Judas has gone, the unbeliever has left. He says to the remaining believers, Love one another. This new covenant, this paradigm of love, is one that is to be directed to this new subject of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is drastically different from the love commanded in the Old Testament. Here's why. You see, whenever the Old Testament says to love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor as a Jew would have been other Jews. Your neighbor, you could talk to somewhere up the family tree. You were both related to Abraham. Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just pray this to the Lord. Right arm, right? You, we were all related somehow. So we're ethnic Jews. And when I love someone else in the old covenant, I'm loving another Jew. But that's not the new covenant. That's not the new commandment. You see, because what we learn is the the church, 
will go outside the cul-de-sac of Judaism and it will include every race, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity. The new covenant community would be made up of not just ethnic Jews who could trace their lineage up to Abraham, but it would be made up of every people. And here's the deal. In spite of all the attempts by policies and governmental agencies and constitutional amendments, we have a heightened segregation and division in the world that we've never had before. You know why? Because governmental agencies and policies and constitutional amendments can't solve the division of the world. Only one thing can. The gospel of Jesus. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. He says, but now, now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is the divine decree of discipleship. We have new subjects of who we're supposed to love. But not only a new subject of love, secondly, there's a new standard of our love. There's a new standard that Jesus lays down for what it means to love other people, particularly other disciples. What does he say in verse 34? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The standard is this. The same way you've been loved by Jesus, you are commanded, this is a new commandment, an edict, a decree, the same way you have been loved by Jesus, believer, you're commanded to love other Christians by our Lord. Same way. Not a suggestion, not a this might be a good idea, commanded. What is this? What does this look like? Well, a few chapters from now, in chapter 15, when we get to it, Lord willing, we'll see that Jesus repeats the new commandment, and he, he expands on what this, as I have loved you, looks like. Look at John 15, 12, and 13. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Same words, right? As I have loved you. Here's the expanded definition. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, our love for the brethren should be marked by humble, sacrificial, selfless, self-abasing love. Now, seldom is it the case, let's be honest, in the American church, seldom is it going to be the case that you're going to actually be asked or required or need to die for another Christian. But I think sometimes even more difficult than that is the daily, regular, ongoing, little deaths we need to die to ourselves to put other people first. True Christian love in, involves a long sequence of little deaths. We die day after day or we set aside our pride. We set aside our personal preferences. I didn't like that music they sang today. We set aside our privileges. How did this whole chapter start, chapter 13? Do you remember? They're entering the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal together. One by one, these disciples go in the front door 
And as they walk in, they pass by a pitcher of water and a basin that are there for the purpose of washing people's feet. One by one, these proud disciples walk by and they can't possibly imagine humbling themselves to wash other people's feet. And what does Jesus do? He takes off his outer garment, laying aside his rights, laying aside his position, laying aside his privilege. He takes off the outer garment and one by one he begins to wash their stinky feet lovingly serving others. This is exactly, exactly what this command means. Exactly. And I want you to know there are, as your pastor, there are people in this church who love just like that. You don't see them. They're not always in front. But I hear about them. I see them. A lot of people never see. And so I'm going to let you know about a few of them. I'm going to call them by name. By the way, I've not given them a heads up that I'm going to call them out by name today. They're going to be just as surprised as you are that I call them out by name. And I want you to know. Laura Hoppy. She's a nursery coordinator. Before her weekend to serve, she contacts all of the people on her team to make sure they're in place so that your children are cared for. She loves like Jesus. Mac Ridge, not only is he one of our deacons of buildings and grounds and he fixes your toilets. Last week at the end of our VBS training lunch, I was technically on vacation. I left the room, but I heard later, Mac stayed when everybody else was gone and he washed all your dishes. He loves like Jesus loves. All the members of our security team, we've got a couple out there right now, Dan McCauley and Russ Patterson, and there's many. While we're in here worshiping the Lord, they're patrolling our campus, making sure your vehicles are safe and that we're safe. They love like Jesus. Daryl and Jennifer Smiley, they serve and shepherd our senior adults, calling them, checking on them, visiting them. They love like Jesus. Randall Bedron, Amber Walliser, Shana Webb, Aaron and Melody and Everett Sturzik <laughs> work in our live stream room. Right now, Randall's up there. It's hot in that video control room so that our homebound folks can join us during our worship service. That's sacrificial. They're loving like Jesus. My wife, Amy, she's not in here because she's cooking the food for our youth fundraiser. She'll be cooking the food for our Wednesday night supper this Wednesday. By the way, she said if there's not enough people to eat the spaghetti today, instead of having tacos Wednesday, we're having spaghetti Wednesday. So <laughs> make sure you come for the fundraiser so we can have tacos and not leftovers. Alan and Pam Hotes. They picked up where others have left off where John and Mary Babb had to bow out after a couple of decades of serving those at Jacoba, picking up food and delivering it. They do it. Y'all don't even know this. Every week, they're serving the unfortunate. Rick Wilson, another one of our deacons of buildings and grounds. A couple weeks ago, he fixed a sagging gutter out here on the second floor, up on a tall ladder. 
He's built some steps to go in this space right here. He's repaired several things. Why? He loves like Jesus loves. Gene Self, one of our homebound members, a f- former elder, he texts me regularly praying for you. That's loving like Jesus. Our associate pastor, Wade Casey, he gets here before everybody else gets here. And you know what he does on Sunday mornings? He goes around with a broom and he cleans all the spider webs off all the doorways and windows. That's not in his job description. I didn't ask him to do that. He doesn't want you walking through spider webs when you show up. You know what that is? That's loving like Jesus. I could go on and on (laughs) because we've got some amazing people here who don't ask for props. They would not have ever wanted me to point them out in a service, but you need to know this is what loving like Jesus looks like. And did you catch what Jesus said would be the result of his disciples loving one another like this would be? Look at verse 35 again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you listen to the same kind of music. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you root for the same college football team. I don't like Florida, but I still pull for the Gators. Sorry. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have the same fashion preferences, if you regularly eat at Chick-fil-A the Baptist chicken, if you uh, read the same translation of the Bible, if you vote for the same candidates. Oh, now you start meddling. That's not what he says. By this, all people will know if you are truly my disciple, if you love one another. That is the distinguishing mark of genuine conversion. Love For the brethren. But real quickly, I want us to consider this fourth and final observation from this passage. Number four, the distraction of Peter. Now, we've seen impetuous Peter open his mouth again and again and insert his foot, and he does it again. He should have just remained quiet. After Jesus gives this profound life-altering new commandment. He gets distracted from the primary, love like I love, and he focuses in on the secondary. Let me say that again. Peter gets distracted from the primary, and he focuses in on instead the secondary. I want you to see how he does that. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Peter is referring back up to verse 33, where Jesus said, just like I told the Jews, I'm telling you, little children, I'm going away. And it's as if Peter completely missed the most important part of this statement, love each other. He skips over that and he goes back to the other And he says, "Uh, Lord, where are you going? Well, where I'm going, you can't come. Why not? I'll lay down my life for you. Peter became distracted by the secondary and became distracted by the secondary instead of being fixated on the primary. Now, it's not that what Jesus said about leaving and going away was not important. It was. He said it. It's just not as important. You see that? It's not unimportant that Jesus said, hey, where I'm going, you can't come. It's just not as important as the primary, the new commandment. 
Peter becomes distracted by this secondary issue and completely missed the primary issue. Has that ever happened to us? We get distracted by secondary issues and we completely forget about the primary issue. We get distracted by all these secondary things. It can happen theologically. We can become enamored by things like eschatology, end times, when's the rapture going to come? Look at the newspaper. Oh, when is it going to happen? Those things are not unimportant. They're just not as important as loving each other. We can become distracted by things happening, happening sociologically, the, the out-of-control culture that we live in, the upside-down ethics of the world in which we live in, uh, the artificial intelligence that's going to end the human race. <laughs> I'm concerned about those things, but they're secondary. Don't get distracted by the secondary and miss the primary. Peter gets distracted, and it seems to shock Peter back into reality, Jesus says some harsh words that will shock him. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Well, for one, Peter, Jesus doesn't need you to lay down his, your life for him. You need Jesus to lay his life down for you. But in response to Peter's declaration of absolute allegiance to the death, look at verse 38 again. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Really? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter makes this grand declaration of allegiance to Jesus, even to the point of death, but before the next morning, he will be completely undone by a little servant girl who just simply asks him, Weren't you with the Galilean too? I thought I saw you with him. No, no, with curses. Things fly out of his mouth that he hasn't said for three years. Completely undone. How about you? You ever been there? Have you ever denied the Lord when there was a potential for embarrassment? Have you ever denied the Lord when it meant a potential cost to your reputation. I want to give you one word, if that's you, and it's me, I'll tell you. One word that Jesus spoke to Peter, and I hope Peter grabbed a hold of this one word. And I hope you grab a hold of this one word, because it changes everything. Look again at verse 36. Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Can I tell you something, child of God? However you fail the Lord, there's an afterward. However you've missed the mark, however you've embarrassed the faith, friends, there's an afterward. And Jesus says to Peter, where I'm going to trial to the cross. You can't follow me now. But you, not Judas, will follow me afterward. After the resurrection, Jesus and Peter have another conversation. It's recorded here in the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, Jesus pulls Peter aside, and on three occasions, Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? 
seemingly corresponding to the three times Peter denied the Lord before his death. I want you to notice the third time Jesus asked Peter that question as we move to a conclusion. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What does that mean? Love the brethren. Love one another. Love the other disciples. A telltale sign that you are a genuine, authentic follower of Jesus is that like Jesus, you selflessly and sacrificially love one another. And that leads to my last thought. Love for one another is the distinguishing mark of Jesus' new covenant people. Let's go to him in prayer.